Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee and welcome to SITREP from BFBS, the only radio programme to keep you up to date with what's going on in defence and foreign affairs that concern you. Now in the next 60 minutes, if President Karzai is part of an election fraud, what does that make us? We put him there, didn't we? And did not the airline plotters trial suggest Prime Minister Brown's got it wrong about Afghanistan? And why the Northern Ireland bombers are still in business and which bombers? Why the Royal Navy plans to be the fastest in the West and the East? Why the MOD keeps getting it wrong? And why the world didn't come to an end yesterday? Well, we presume it didn't. With me at the SIPNET Roundtable here in central London, a London that thinks it may still be summer, the chief foreign uh, political correspondent for Global Radio News, Christopher Walker, the military historian and former war correspondent, Patrick Bishop, and the director of the Military Sciences Department of the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies. That title... Uh, Michael Codner is getting longer, not yours, but um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, Roosie's is getting longer and longer and longer, isn't it? It is indeed. Yes, I mean, that celebrates 12 months of a new director, obviously. Um, <laughs> your brief, uh, Michael Codner, I mean, it, it, it covers defence policy, strategic theory, doctrine, defence management, future concepts and the application of technology to military capability, he read. I mean, given what's going on today, I'm surprised you've got time enough to come into this year. It covers everything, doesn't it? It's certainly quite a rush. I'm very much a, a jack-of-all-trades, as you can see, and there are lots of deep experts, and I pull stuff together, I suppose. As the Navy's always, always done. Absolutely. As a former naval officer. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's, this decade has been an adventure playground for a person such as yourself, isn't it, with all these sort of disciplines? Certainly. I mean, at the, at the end of the Cold War, um, for a start, uh, opened up the doors. And then uh, after 9-11, um, we've certainly been in, in business in every sense. And with the uh, possibility of a defence review now and all the uncertainties about British defence policy for the future, uh, yes, we're very busy indeed. Um, Christopher Walker, given all these different bits that have to go into the mm. mix of p- public understanding of what's going on, it's, it's, it's hardly any... Um, chance is it that the public will understand I mean given the public perspective the United Kingdom role as what was part of a United States led interventionist force uh, during the past 18 years has never been anything else but controversial you've only, you've only well, done hard knock headlines haven't you? Uh, no I think people the first Gulf War yeah. I think that touched a chord. You know, people knew what they were doing. Because they, they had a horrible enemy in Saddam. They had a plucky little Kuwait and they knew. Then I think it sort of went downhill from there. Kosovo, very complicated. Americans apparently bombing the Chinese embassy for reasons of their own. Iraq, at the beginning, although terribly unpopular with the public marches, one, did, one met plenty of people who also supported. That got rather political. And now Afghanistan, we've seen today's poll, 60% uh, against. And frankly, it's very hard out and out there, as it were, in the real streets to find anybody who really under, believes that we're there for the reason that we're told we're there is the front line against terrorism. Patrick Bishop, um, I mean, I remember uh, reading your stuff in 82, Falklands, um, but now as a military historian, but as well as a commentator, um, do you not get the impression that we've actually got into a position where we should have learned a hell of a lot about communications? Government should have learned a hell of a lot about communications. But as Christopher Walker says, you can get polls today and say that people on the streets say, well, what are we there for? I think they may have learned too much about communications and that there is so much emphasis 
on the presentation that uh, they've rather overlooked what the message is. And I was reading Gordon Brown's speech earlier on, and you know the, the, the focus has shifted again. Instead of saying originally the story was we have to be in Afghanistan because the Taliban are hand in glove with Al Qaeda. If we defeat the Taliban, we keep Al Qaeda in check. They've now shifted and admitted there actually isn't that much of a link between Al Qaeda and Taliban. There is obviously uh, some sort of mutual interest. But the uh, the focus keeps changing and the interpretation keeps changing and the rhetoric gets windier and windier. So when you hear them talking about it being uh, akin to 1940, you know, the White Cliffs of Dover and the fields of Helmand are one and the same thing, you realise they're way out of their depth historically. They have such little understanding of uh, our national history and indeed of the way that the military operates. I think they're, they're totally... Um, unsure themselves about what the actual message mm -hmm. is, so it's no surprise that ordinary people can't really understand why we're there. So they don't actually understand why we're there. Um, that's a pretty bad place to get into, isn't it, uh, uh, Michael? Uh, it is indeed. I mean, one can, one can speculate on uh, all the reasons which relate very much to the history from 9-11 um, onwards, um, and initially it was very much to support the United States in... Uh, in their attack, for which there was global support with the United Kingdom in the front. But then we went back again um, during the aftermath of the Gulf War, and that's, I find, less easy to explain. Um, uh, there are a number of reasons, and it's not only getting rid of the Taliban. It's, um, it's all to do with the fact the Americans needed help at that stage. And uh, you could say there were other reasons which relate to um, the Army's role as framework nation for the ACE Rapid Reaction Corps and its use at that particular time. But we weren't the obvious choice, bearing in mind that we were so heavily committed to Iraq at the time. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons that um, Patrick, Patrick Bishop is here with us today is his new book, and we're not going to talk about it now, we'll talk about it later on. Um, it's about the Battle of Britain. Well, it is the chronological uh, description of the Battle of, of Britain. But one part of it, right at the beginning, um, Patrick, you, when you talk about um, one of the successes of the Battle of Britain was to prove to America that plucky little Britain would not let them down, and if they have to come to Europe, it's a place to actually come, uh, and that we were in it for the long war. Um, there is a sense that we're still in that sort of business of actually having to sort of please the Americans or, or, or impress them at least. Very much so. I mean, it's rather sad when you stand back and, and look at it, the, the extent um, to which we are a very, very junior partner and to which our grand strategic ambitions and interests rely entirely on, on their friendship. Having said that, I think there's a kind of growing feeling that perhaps we should uh, be a little bit more independent-minded, a, a little bit less craven in the way that we follow suit whenever... Uh, the Americans need us and you know it's, it's quite interesting how often nowadays you hear people talking warmly about Harold Wilson and about yeah, how he kept us out of Vietnam, you know, Vietnam uh, yeah. but also in Basra they weren't terribly impressed with us were they when we left and they felt they had to send their own men in I mean we don't always seem to please them even when we do what <laughs> the sort of thing they want let's, let's bring it up to date um, really I was looking at the, you mentioned the ICM which was for the National Army Museum, wasn't it? Which, mm. I, which I thought rather odd. Also, it was, it was across Europe too, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I it mean, said that uh, in the United Kingdom, 53% um, have rejected um, the government reasons for us to be in Afghanistan. 53% people rejected. This mm. is sort of... This is changing, isn't it? Or not? 
Well, I don't know. It's, uh, as Patrick was saying, it, it's entirely unconvincing. As they give a different reason virtually every week, people are very muddled. And I think what's happened is, funnily enough, those few Islamic fanatics have started demonstrating against the soldiers' coffins and this thing has built up now where we're getting such publicity about the dead bodies coming back, you know, that village where they line up and the very moving scenes there. Mm. It's suddenly Wouldn't come home, it. yes. Mm. It's come home in a way more, I think, than even Northern Ireland. I mean, I don't, I don't remember other coffins on a weekly basis being greeted in that sort of sombre way. No. Um, and it has changed things. It's interesting, going up previous conflicts, people were asked, you know, did you, what sort of things did you, you know, did you support, for example, Iraq, Falklands, Northern Ireland, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and Bosnia. It's interesting, and people said, yeah, 53% said, yeah, we should have been in Northern Ireland. 56%, yeah, Falklands, mm-hmm. okay, we go with that. Iraq, only mm-hmm. 20%, and Bosnia... Thirty percent. Now, I would have thought that Bosnia would come down below Iraq because at least it's a terrible thing to say, but at least in Iraq we knew where it was and people could pronounce the names and they knew the sort of issues. No, but I think the coverage is something to do with it. I mean, Martin Bell uh, out in uh, Bosnia, you know, brought home this conflict and Mm. there was ethnic cleansing, a most repulsive sort of behaviour going on by some of the Serbians, whereas now Afghanistan almost, uh, I know there's been an incident with uh, Stephen Farrell and such like recently, but a lot of it's top of the hotel reporting because the poor guys and girls can't get anywhere else. Mm. So if you move the palm tree, they might as well be on the top of the hotel in Baghdad. Mm. Yeah. It's not coming home to people, I this, don't think. Michael, do you I was going to say, I've just come back from two days in Sarajevo, and if you were to present the situation in Bosnia now, I think, to the British public and ask, uh, was it worthwhile, I think one might get um, a very different result if you could do that convincingly. And at the same for Kosovo. What, they say it was or it wasn't? I think they say it was, if you saw where Bosnia was today. It's got a very long way to go, um, and there are huge uncertainties, but it's not the sort of country I was expecting when, when, when I arrived off the airport. OK, let's, let's, let's stick with Afghanistan. Um, uh, listening to us on the line, I hope, from the um, Centre for Strategic International Studies in Washington, D.C., Dr. Karen von Hippel. Um, Karen, were you, you were one of the election monitors in, the, in Afghanistan, weren't you? Yes, I was. I was with the National Democratic Institute's small observing team. They decided to bring only a few internationals and rely more on their very well-trained Afghan observers because of the security constraints. Do you go along with this sort of emerging opinion opinion that um, that the thing was a bit bent? Well, I mean, it's quite interesting. Uh, there is starting to be a debate uh, in the United States similar to what's going on in Europe right now. Uh, why are we there? McChrystal May is presenting his strategy here in a few weeks. He's the new you know head of the the NATO mission out there, and he will be presenting a strategy. He's under a lot of pressure not to ask for more resources, but it seems to be that he wants more troops to help him. And now it's not clear if he'll get more troops or if he's going to try to rejigger the current configuration so that, you know, 10,000 soldiers who are not doing combat work can be contracted out and they can bring in more what they call trigger pullers. So that's that. there is a, a lot of pressure right now because many more Americans are starting to think that uh, that this war may not be the right war. And, you know, if you look at it in some ways, al-Qaeda may not be in Afghanistan anymore. Um, it's not clear if we left that they would be able to come back. It's not clear that the Taliban would even be able to take over the country. Um, 
so what I think we really need right now in the United States, at least, uh, similar to what's going on, I think, in the U.K., is really a big public debate. We did not have that before we went to war in Iraq, and we really do need to air out uh, air out these issues in, in detail. Because one of the difficulties, if it's if it's if it's suggested as the um, United uh, States representative, special representative Richard Holbrook has suggested, if it suggests that President Karzai may be party to a huge election fraud, what does that make us? Because we put him there, right? I mean, that's what is uh, making people very nervous. Why are we losing lives and and a lot of money uh, for this corrupt government? Um, it could be that up to a million votes may have been stolen in this election. So it's quite extraordinary. We have to watch what happens over the next two weeks. The Electoral Complaints Commission, which is the body that's really the last body to adjudicate disputes, um, it, it has three internationals and two Afghans on it. Um, they are now saying we do want a recount of a large number of votes. And if that happens, and if they exclude those votes that were obviously fraudulent, in other words, you know, in a, in a ballot center where only 600 ballots were delivered, you have more ballots than 600. So if they can exclude those fraudulent votes, Karzai won't, will, may not be over 50%. He needs to be 50% plus one to win and to avoid a runoff. So at the moment, he is above that figure, but that's including a number, a large number of fraudulent votes. Tell me, there's quite a movement in Europe, as you know, to get a United Nations-sponsored conference by what, December of this year to discuss these election results. Um, a, I'm not sure that the Americans would want to sign up for that, certainly not at the moment, and, and without the Americans there, there's no conference. But secondly, it's a bit late then, isn't it? Well, no, I actually think the Americans do support this idea. I heard that uh, when I was out in Kabul. They're very supportive of a conference. They actually want it to take place in Kabul. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily be about the elections, but really a new pact would be doing going forward with whatever government is in power. Tell me one, um, I mean, one final, one final point. Um, if, um, just supposing there were a change of leadership and the foreign minister uh, got, got the gig, is that going to be any better? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, there's the corruption is quite endemic in many parts of the country. I think we can work with who's ever in power, Karzai or Abdullah, Abdullah, whoever it is. I think we can work with them, but we just need to really put a lot more pressure pressure on them to uh, change the way that they work. And I think we also need to get our house in order too. We haven't uh, necessarily been living up to our own expectations as well. So I think that on both sides, we need to change our behavior. Right, Caravan Heppel. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Um, Patrick, the, the, this week I was reading all the details of the um, airline plotters trial, um, you know, and three have been convicted. And it emphasised, didn't it, that the Pakistan connection. And I, I began to wonder, well, if there is this such an emphasis on the Pakistan connection, it suggests to me that the Prime Minister and his advisers, not just him, got it wrong about Afghanistan because he's selling the idea that Afghanistan is the front line now fight against what's going on in British streets. Well you're absolutely right about that Christopher and um, I've noticed that on the the comment on um, blog sites and all the rest of it is very much moving in that direction saying look hang on it's all you know these guys came from Pakistan the 7-7 thing seems to have been directed from Pakistan why are we wasting our time in Afghanistan when you know to a, an interested observer <clears throat> the connection between Taliban and al-Qaeda is by no means uh, necessarily a strong one. But I think you'll find that the, the government rhetoric is actually moving in that direction, shifting it over to, towards Pakistan and making very positive 
noises about uh, the new relationship, what's going on in the Swat Valley, that the Pakistan military are finally realising the extent of the threat. So I think they've kind of finally taken that on board. But where that leaves them in terms of British soldiers lying in helmet, I don't know, because it does actually, in the long term, make it even more difficult to persuade people that what we're doing there has any value. Mm. Michael Codner, think tankers like yourself, if I can call people like yourself think tankers, but think tankers, um, they would say, well, hang on, this is a war, it's been going on longer than World War II. Circumstances do change. You don't stand up and say, ah, oh, but you said the reason we were going to war, which is what I've been saying, of course, uh, no longer valid, and it was a lot of rubbish in the first place. It may not have been a lot of rubbish in the first place, but we are there now for different reasons, and that's, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that, should we? This is a very good point, and uh, one of the criticisms of um, the Ministry of Defence and government um, uh, in, in its process of uh, developing policy over the last few years is that it doesn't have a system of formally reviewing its objectives in operations. Uh, it, that's an awkward thing to try and do because if you are exposed as having to change your mind or to alter your policy, uh, then that's something that political parties and the media will jump onto. But unless you do adapt your policy to suit changing circumstances, your policy is going to become irrelevant. And that is a very serious problem. And in the British case, the... Uh, the way we develop policy, and that is basically to deal with events, middle and events, dear boy, events, um, does uh, create this particular problem of um, how do you change without um, exposing yourself as having made a mistake in the first place. Christopher Walker, it's interesting, it was a former Labour um, a Foreign Secretary, it wasn't there very long, Tony Crossland, the late Tony Crossland, said that um, he thought that foreign policy in wartime was rather like being in a prize fight. Um, you went out in the first round, you sized the guy up and he smacked you one, you know, just below the eye and you started to bleed. Uh, so you had to change your policy and that was all right because you were fighting by yourself. Mm. But he said the problem is when you're fighting with allies, you actually don't know whether you can change your policy because that shows disunity. Mm. Yes, and we all know the disunity of the present uh, Allied setup in that some are fighting, they're almost to different rules. But it wasn't long ago in this studio that you and I were talking about the fact that the German troops had to be back in Bedibais by 6pm. I mean, not about not fighting on the front line. The French Foreign Legion are a quite different kettle of fish. I think a lot of Brits and Americans would like to see them up doing more prominent work. But everybody's fighting differently. Uh, and sometimes... You have to, don't you? Because you've got different political systems. Yeah, but it's officially it so war. complicated if people are not, not fighting a different war. They're fighting with different losses, with different national involvement. There's no doubt the Brits and the Americans are very dug in. The French to an and extent. And the Dutch. And the Dutch. Danes. Canadians. Yes, indeed. What is it uh, as unpopular in Denmark as it is here? No. Why is that? No, I don't know. I well, I mean, isn't why. it because they're not dug in in the same way? Well, they're not getting every night a flash on the BBC News that MOD has just announced another soldier, his family have been told. I mean, this is getting as regular as Northern Ireland when it was last 70s, night another soldier. Yeah. yeah. Michael, you look doubtful about that. The Danes do have a different process. They build consensus um, uh, and then the par parliamentary parties agree on what policy will be for a five-year period. And uh, this 
it takes away some of the problems. If they've committed, then all the parties broadly have committed to what they're doing for the time being. Yeah. Well, Mr Haig and uh, Mr Cameron uh, chose to talk in front of a BBC microphone yesterday, which, which was they knew full off. well was on, because the this morning Mr Haig wrote a huge article on the same subject yes. in the newspaper, well, in which they said them. basically they rubbished the government for backing what you said earlier, if there's a fraudster is our man in the ring, aren't we fraudsters putting him up there? Yeah. And how do you get round that one? I haven't heard a single uh, proper answer to that yet. I, I think one of the, one of the difficulties right. is um, that at no point... It's only now, after eight years, that the uh, strategy and the tactics have actually coagulated in, in a meaningful way. So you've got McChrystal saying what we need to do is uh, clear, hold and build, clear, hold and build. You'd have thought they would have known that on day one, you know. And most, pl most platoon leaders know that from day <laughs> yeah, one. Yeah, and they're now finally come to this conclusion, and of course they haven't got the numbers to do it. It's so obvious. Everyone keeps going about the Malaya model and so forth. But, I mean, it's common sense to know that if you go out and patrol, uh, you return to your fob at the end of the day, the Taliban own the night. They will come in, they will intimidate, they will kill, they will torture anyone who's shown a you know, friendly face to the soldiers. Unless you're there 24-7, you're never going to be in a position to, to do all the reconstruction work that is absolutely vital, the governance work, to move things on. OK, let's move on ourselves, because we don't want to turn it into a sort of M MA seminar, do we, on this? Um, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> why not? Um, let's go from warfare to warfare equipment. Uh, the biennial defence systems and equipment international exhibition has been on all week, uh, in London. It's marketed as an opportunity for those who deal in military technology to mingle. Uh, I can't imagine people who deal in military technology mingling, but that's what they do. Um, they can do deals and they can discuss the future technologies. Jamie Gordon reports. DSEI 2009 is the largest military trade fair in the world, attracting over 1,300 exhibitors from 40 countries, and some 25,000 arms brokers have been attending the event at the Excel Centre in London. Everything from helmet lights to unmanned helicopters, pocket-sized radios, to a system that allows you to swim whilst protected from enemy fire are all being displayed and demonstrated. The UK's approach to 21st century warfare is a central theme to the exhibition, with members of the British Army export support team there showing off the latest equipment and demonstrating the current thinking which covers four main areas of high intensity operations maintaining a secure environment leading to peace support and humanitarian operations many of the exhibits are of the non-lethal variety including body cooling armor and the latest medical equipment its defensive gear which is most prevalent this year of course the event has also attracted a moral dimension with demonstrations by the campaign against the arms trades and although it didn't amount to much, it certainly highlighted the controversy. Politicians have also been talking about the merits or otherwise of actively trading in military equipment. The Shadow Defence Secretary Liam Fox spoke earlier this week saying the Conservatives would use defence exports as a foreign policy tool. The former Conservative Defence and Foreign Secretary Sir Malcolm Rifkind believes diplomacy and the arms trade go hand in hand, but exports should be carefully considered. First of all, you've got to be sure uh, that any country to whom you sell arms is a country that will use them in a responsible way, which means primarily for self-defense, but occasionally it means uh, there may be, for example, a United Nations approved military intervention in some part of the world. When, for example, Kuwait was invaded, the countries that liberated Kuwait from Iraq 
needed the armaments and the military equipment to do that. Very few of them have their own defence industry. But Professor Dan Plesch, the Director for the Centre of International Studies and Diplomacy at the School of Oriental and African Studies, says if the UK wants to deal in arms, it should stick to its own rigid guidelines. Really, do we want to have a world of a free-for-all in armaments, or do we want to have a world where we have the same sort of regulation of guns that we have domestically? After all, we have very, very rigorous uh, controls of uh, guns and weapons within Britain, and we should be having the same policy internationally, if that's the sort of world we want to live in. As for the exhibition itself, the DSEI spokesman, Paul Beaver, said Britain had the toughest defence export regulations in the world, and the trade fair would not only be good for the UK economy, but would ensure that members of of the British Armed Forces had access to the best possible kit. DSEI 2009 is the largest military trade... That's Jamie Gordon um, at the uh, 2009 exhibition. Um, Michael, Paul Beavers, sorry, on the line I think we've also got, listening to that, the Financial Times uh, Defence Industries correspondent, uh, Jeremy Lima. Is that right? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Great stuff. Were you at the exhibition? I was, yes, yes, uh, on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday. This idea that people are mingling, mingling, uh, doing deals and, and things, does that actually happen at an exhibition like this? Well, there are a lot of questions coming into this um, particular exhibition as to whether it was worth companies um, exhibiting. Um, there was some concern that obviously the stands are very expensive and that um, it's difficult to actually sign deals. But um, there's a, a sense within industry that you have to be seen, you have to be there, you have to show your presence. And so for companies like PAE Systems, um, there really is no other choice but to be there. there um, I was listening to that last point that Paul Beaver, the spokesman, was saying. He said, well, you know, after all, the, the point is that arms sales are good for the economy. That's never been disputed, has it? Um, not really, no. I think it, it's clear that um, uh, exports of any sort, are, uh, uh, especially uh, manufactured goods, are useful to our balance of payments, uh, deficits and, and other aspects like that. Um, but there are clearly sort of um, issues such as reputational risk that go with selling particular items like, uh, like weapons abroad. And also, if you get into deals which are uh, largely have a, a political element, I mean, I'm thinking sort of deals that you might get into in, 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 in the Gulf states, for example. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Tell me... Um, I was quite interested in the MOD um, sort of making noises. It's about to sign a is it two billion contract for 600 um, Fres vehicles, you know, the future rapid effect system. The idea, presumably, that it wants to beat any treasury restrictions. Um, can it do that? Or does it actually say, look, if we sign now and agree to some big cancellation clause, you can't cancel it? Well, there has been a suspicion in the past that um, when it comes to, um, uh, when, when there are lots of pressures on budgets, um, parts of the, the MOD procurement authority and certainly the services try and squeeze through their um, uh, their projects as quickly as they can so that they get them on the records. And then, as you say, those cancellation clauses make it very difficult to back out of the uh, the projects later. Um, that was the case, some people suspect, with, uh, with the carriers, which were um, uh, agreed, uh, I believe, last year. And then just a few months after being agreed, the timetable had to be totally renegotiated because of... Um, difficulties in finding the cash. Um, so there is some suspicion that that's the case. Um, but in the case of FRES, uh, there is a strong argument that these uh, vehicles are, are needed. Uh, they're there to replace the um, uh, scimitar vehicles and other reconnaissance vehicles, which are very old. I think they were produced in the, the 1970s, and, and many um, uh, um, experts believe they're on, really on their last legs. Tell me, there's been a heck of a lot, hasn't there, in the past, you must have watched it, in the past 12 months, the House of Commons Select Committees, all the chiefs of uh, the staff, um, pressure groups, and in fact, the last um, uh, few days, we've had the former Defence Secretary, John Hutton, 
basically they're all slagging off MOD procurement systems. Is it an easy target or is the MOD just useless at this sort of thing because of the size of the, uh, uh, of the programme? Well, you're right. Uh, yes, in the last uh, couple of weeks, we've had uh, lots and lots of people um, making very sharp criticisms of the MOD and particularly the 24,000 or so civil servants at Abbeywood who, who make up the procurement authorities. Um, uh, Liam Fox on uh, earlier in the week um, uh, raised the point that uh, there are only 34,000 or so staff and personnel in the in the Royal Navy, and yet 24,000 people at Abbeywood, and and those um, uh, the relationship between those two numbers is rather striking. Um, but, but the job they do is in fact very very difficult. Um, uh, they're trying to buy uh, very complicated systems. Um, they're trying to predict um, a long way into the future about what type of systems will be necessary. Um, and so in some respects, it is, uh, it is very difficult um, a job for them to do. They are also at the mercy of the financial situation and of their uh, political overmasters who uh, uh, change their minds and decide that certain things are worthwhile and others aren't um, at short notice. Um, so it is a, a very challenging job. Jeremy Lima, thank you very much indeed. Um, Michael, I interrupted you earlier. Um, I'm just thinking, thinking that we, we say the MOD um, gets slagged off. You shouldn't ignore the military, should we? I mean, people who have sat in sort of future requirements, operational requirements, and sort of remember, I think, was, was it the carrier? Carriers are still operating in the 60s. We used to call them through-deck carriers because nobody would through call... Through-deck cruisers. Through-deck cruisers because nobody wanted to call them carriers, etc. And then they said, no, well, actually, what we want, we want this ship. Uh, but we wanted to do this, and then about 12 months later, said, no, no, actually, we wanted to do this as well. I think the, the military staff sometimes uh, don't make life easy for procurement, do they? Well, the way the, way, um, the Ministry of Defence is presented um, by the media implies that you've got this Ministry of Defence full of, of civil servants uh, who are mismanaging things, and the soldiers... Right, and the 24,000 guys on Abbey Wood. Yep. And the soldiers and others um, who uh, are doing the real business. I mean, one needs the British model is one where you've actually got large numbers of military actually integrated into the acquisition system generally. I and mean, the procurement part of that, the Abbey Wood bit, is higher in its numbers of civil servants. But the people making the decisions about where to spend the money, uh, most of them are military. Yeah. And uh, the top decisions, of course, go through... Uh, the various committees which um, have the chief of staff on them. So you can't separate off the military from... Yeah, yeah they, can't, from, they can't just say, oi, MOD yeah, got it wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's always interests me that apart from the Foreign Office, the MOD is the only ministry that has the end user working in it. I don't think there's another ministry, is there, that actually has its doctors or its farmers <laughs> or, 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 or whatever working in it. So you think they would get it right. If you go back to, what, 83... 80, about 83, Michael Heseltine spotted this, put in, what was that guy's name that used to run Marks and Sparks? Peter Levine? Peter Levine, yes. Yeah. He, Levine put him, he put yeah. him in, didn't he, to try mm. and reform it. Mm. And he did. Uh, I, I think what um, it's difficult to sort of defend the British acquisition, defence acquisition system, but one needs to make the point that we have been in a state of constant reform from before Levine, and certainly Levine's uh, reforms were, uh, took United Kingdom a long way further uh, down the um, competition-based uh, value-for-money road than most other nations had done. And then you have smart acquisition, which was a fairly substantial review, and then the defence industrial strategy. Uh, one of the problems is you have this continuous turbulence in the British system, which makes it... Uh, 
and it never settles down. A lot of the uh, big programs that have gone badly wrong, and Fres is to some extent one of those. Uh, the, because nobody knew what it was for. Well, or it, was, what it, was. it was. It's an issue of complexity. It tried to make. Uh, <laughs> yes, Minister. Uh, what do you mean it's an issue of complexity? <laughs> you try to do too many things. Yes. Uh, mm. With uh, a program, and once you get over a certain level of bits and pieces you're trying to knit together, then uh, no one can actually have a feel for the whole thing, and it's very difficult to get a supplier. Patrick, Christopher, both of you have um, served your time on the front line reporting wars. Yeah, Do the guys on the front line actually get these complexities uh, issues, or do they say, you know, the boots are no good, Gov, or the night goggles are no good? They say much more of that, of that than the other. They're not discussing complexities. But I think you've got to remember this it goes back so long. I mean, we all learned at school, didn't we? Then the Crimean War, the uh, commissariat there sent left boots in one boat, right boots in another boat, and one of the boats sank. So the guys yeah. were left hopping yes. to war. I mean, it Hence goes the expression, back... actually, hop, skip and jump. Did you know that? <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Really? the Crimea War. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. well, uh, you live and learn on this programme, but I mean, I don't think they live and learn much. Maybe none the MO... wiser, but you're better informed. That's yeah. what they say about this programme. But on the MOD, <laughs> just to very quickly make the point yes. that uh, Michael was making, I mean, the Tories, a year probably from power, have made pretty clear that they're going to chop civil servants everywhere they can see. That's their sort of recipe. And these 24,000 ladies and gentlemen must be very worried if there's that many of them, more than in the Navy. I mean, I should imagine they won't all be there in 18 months' time. And the point to make is that there are rather less than there were, and putting together logistics and... and, um, Rather less than there were what? uh, Civil servants. servants, uh, was a way of rationalising this. Um, You've already been chopped once. Okay? <laughs> yeah, listen, it's uh, we're late, you know. It's uh, it's 33 minutes after the hour. Should be half past. You're listening to SITREP on BFBS Radio with me, Christopher Lee, in the SITREP studio today. Patrick Bishop, Christopher Walker, and Michael Codner. Uh, by the way, if you've just tuned in, you're wondering what's going on, or you've missed, you can download SITREP, uh, SITREP as a podcast, or listen again uh, whenever you like, simply by going to bfbs.com forward slash Sit rep. Now, let's go to Northern Ireland because uh, a reminder that the troubles in that province are not really over. A £600 bomb was planted by a so-called dissident IRA group this week near Fork Hill. Most serious incident since March, I suppose, when dissidents killed two British soldiers. Well, this week's target was, was, according to security officers, probably a PSNI patrol, or people from the Ballykinla Army Base. On the line from Belfast, Chris Ryder. Do we know who the bombers were, Chris? Just that they were one of these dissident factions um, who are operating along the border at the moment, uh, primarily along the border, but also in the city of Derry. And also in parts of Belfast, there, there, there is a, a notable threat from some of these dissident organisations who do not accept the peace process, who, who have disowned the provisional IRA, and who are attempting to carry on the, the, the fight for United Ireland in the old traditional physical force way. I mean, is it wrong to say, well, look, let's be careful, because that's sort of how the um, provisional IRA uh, got into business? Well, it is, but, um, you know, they're... There's a great concern uh, that uh, they hold the, 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 all the cards, the, the advantage of surprise more than anything. You know, the police have to continue to patrol in the areas where they're at great risk. Um, uh, you know, there's not the same sophisticated cover that previously existed with the 
army towers and the various uh, backup uh, systems that the army could provide. So uh, the police are adopting a pretty much high-risk profile in these areas. And, um, uh, you know, despite this, they, they went and held a public meeting in Cross Midland the other night uh, to demonstrate that there are no no-go areas and that they're continuing to try and provide a service to the public. So there's really a bottle for the hearts and minds of, of the ordinary community who resent the disruption that's caused uh, by the bombs, but at the same time have still to reconcile themselves fully to the concept of uh, policing by, by the PSMI. So, uh, you know, this is all part of the, the instability that uh, still festers around the edges of the, the situation here. And uh, it's, the picture's not good at a political level either because there are increasing signs of instability in the executive. There's been a huge amount of indecision over all sorts of uh, economic and, and, and social measures. Uh, there are now uh, rows going on about the, the way forward and about the delays in various legislation that should be coming forward. There's delays over the, the proposed devolution of policing and justice responsibility. Uh, so uh, you know, there is a pretty unstable picture at the moment. I was thinking that the I mean, £600 bomb, am I just being over-impressed by the size of the weapon? Um, but no, that sounds to me like capability. Know, it, it sounds big, but I mean, you must remember that the, the main component is fertiliser. And there's no shortage of fertiliser in, 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 in an agricultural area like Armagh. And more than that, there's, there are people around with the knowledge uh, to create a bomb like that. I mean, it was the classic uh, ambush position because the, there was a command wire which stretched across the border into the Irish Republic. Just across the, the field, wasn't it? Behind a hedge. Behind a hedge. And then across into the, the firing point would have been in, 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 the, in the Irish Republic, which made it, would have made a follow-up uh, investigation even more difficult if the thing had detonated. So, uh, you know, there, there are, and there, there's worrying evidence now that this know-how has been passed on to a new and younger generation. So uh, the threat is a very real one, and, and the police do have a big job in their hands. Um, they've got some support from MI5, of course, here, primarily responsible now for anti-terrorist intelligence. And there are, there's been a deployment by some of the special forces support people, the reconnaissance arm, uh, but we don't know how many of them are and what numbers are there. And there are, of course, the usual calls from people for the army to be deployed, but there's absolutely no possibility that's going to happen. Tell me, on, on, on a higher note, uh, the UDA um, supposedly going to uh, decommission its weapons by February next year. Why is it taking so long, Chris? Well, the UDA is just a, a very splintered organisation. It's more rooted in criminality than patriotism, and it's run by, by a number of virtually semi-autonomous brigadiers, so-called, and um, you know they're having a job taking all the people in their organisation with them. Um, you know they're they're dangling uh, the prospect of decommissioning to the government in exchange for a huge investment of of money in loyalist areas. But uh, the, the downside of that is that an awful lot of that money in the past has been embezzled or will not be used to the benefit of the entire community. So uh, money short in any case, so the government have money to play with, and that all creates a, a degree of uncertainty in the whole picture. Right, Chris Ryder, thank you very much indeed. Now, let's go to a different sort of war. If you're wondering where all this noise is, it's me getting a very, very heavy book written by Patrick uh, Bishop. Um, it is the book of the Battle of Britain. Uh, Battle of Britain, a day-by-day -day chronicle, 10th of July, 1940 to 31st of October, 1941. Um, Patrick, why... Did that take place during those dates? Well, it was um, the next phase in uh, in Hitler's war plan. So he'd arrived in 
France, everything had gone tremendously well. He more or less assumed that the, the war was over, I think it's fair to say. And that what, by uh, July <clears throat> 1940? Well, by, I think, yeah, by the end of June he was probably thinking, I, mean, I think we know he was thinking that uh, Britain was in an unsustainable position. Uh, there was no question of it being able to launch any kind of attack on on mainland Europe. Its army had been shattered at uh, Dunkirk, and therefore the sensible thing for the political establishment to do was to see sense, make terms, and uh, basically step to one side and allow uh, German domination of Europe. Uh, when that didn't happen, they were actually in a bit of a quandary. So I think it's a mistake to think that there was all uh, you know, a highly developed plan to move on to then take over Britain. They thought it wouldn't be necessary. The Germans, not just Hitler, but his, uh, his army and air force and naval uh, leaders, and indeed, when it began, it was in a rather kind of haphazard way. Um, lots of conflicting advice from the Navy in particular had very cold feet about the idea of uh, an invasion. So, in one sense, you can say that the the operation was made up as it went along. The thing that strikes me is the way that the Battle of Britain is, is firmly fixed uh, in our psyche as the almost the event... And it strikes me of what you write that it was it was because people stood there and watched it happening, or stood looked up in the sky and watched it happening. Yeah, well, I, I you've said this yourself, but it's it's the first time I think I was trying to think of a precedent, and it really does come back to the Battle of Hastings. That was probably the last time uh, that Britons had stood on the sidelines and watched a decisive battle taking place. So on their has, own territory, yeah. on their own territory. Plus, it was augmented by mass media, by radio, um, newspapers, etc. The rhetoric was coming out of their radios, wonderful rhetoric of, of Churchill's. So it really was uh, civilians on the front line. And indeed, you know, in, the, in this brilliant spectator, front row seats of, of this incredible, um, you know, very spectacular event. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, as a personal side, I remember my mother saying uh, in Kent, watching a dogfight and wondering whether uh, her brother, my uncle, was the guy out there. I mean, it was that sort of closeness that one got to the war. Yes, I mean, that, that really gives the thing a, an incredible emotional charge that is absent from most warfare. Yeah. The, the, other, the other part of it is that we, we build up quite a lot of things like Alamein, um, I mean, the, the greatest spin-doctoring of all, for the British anyway, was Dunkirk, which was an absolute disaster, but we turned it into a, you know, we a plucky victory, wasn't it, and uh, etc. Et but the Battle of Britain... Somehow, I mean, you point out that a lot of these sort of um, sort of gung ho stories they were true. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm actually preparing a talk called <laughs> "Myth and Reality" about the Battle of Britain. But what strikes one is that most of the myths turn out to be very well founded. Uh, the youth of the pilots, their you know carefree ways, um, the the incredible you know apparent incredible odds that they were fighting against. In fact, the reality was it was more more balanced than. It seemed, but the sight of huge air armadas and a few plucky little Spitfires and Hurricanes going up to oppose them, all that was actually what was in front of people. Um, I think the, the other thing that strikes me about it is the, is the, is the uh, gap between what the British public felt and what their political and indeed military leaders were saying at the time. So it, it, it was very close to the hearts of the British public, I think... Um, in in uh, in their sort of you know h historical genes now, it was a sort of people's war in that we uh, the ordinary people's view was uh, uh, almost directly opposed to the expert view. So the the senior soldiers and senior politicians like Halifax and Pieces were saying you know we are in a hopeless position. Hitler is right 
to that extent, but somehow, against all the evidence, and irrationally, um, the British public didn't buy that, and that's what Churchill was able to intuit and to play to with his speeches. One thing that struck me also is, that, is the fact that before the war started, um, the idea of having hurricanes and, uh, and, and spitfires um, was sort of sneered at by a lot of people in the military. They thought that the next war was going to be about bombers. And in fact, in 1932, the Prime Minister then, Baldwin, actually said, got up in Parliament and said, we're going to bomb our way during the next war. The one will always get through. Yeah. Um, and it's another example of how the experts get it wrong. You know, because, In fact, in the long term, they were right. But, um, again, having to make these big guesses, which they ultimately are, no matter how much data you've got, uh, at the end of the day, you've got to sort of jump, make your mind up, and you can get it wrong. They did get it wrong, and it was a civil servant, Sir Thomas Inskip, who actually turned the thing around and accelerated the fighter-building programme. A so, lot of opposition to him there. We, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But who put him in, 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 in the job? Because it was a genius who put uh, Tom Inskip into that job. Somebody who could actually sort of make this thing happen. I don't know is the answer. Um, he was, a, you know, he didn't have any kind of background. Yeah. He was a, a, a lawyer, lawyer, yes. Yeah. Tell me, I want to bring in um, <laughs> Christopher Walker, Michael Codner. Um, Christopher, the image, come back to image. Mm-hmm. It is the image that survives, isn't it? It's, it's the Battle of Britain... Um, the, I suppose, Battle of Trafalgar is the other one that we, we think of. These big... Yeah. But not many others. Because and what's so amazing is, I don't know how many of our listeners are, are aware, I mean, those of us who were watching television news the other night, suddenly seeing Vera Lynn, seeing We'll Meet Again, and finding out that she was battling for the top of the hip parade with the Arctic monkeys. I mean, there's been an incredible turnaround and populates her CD of all hang her on, specials. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Arctic monkeys. Well, there... You've, um, you've, you've come to the agent. Have yeah. you listened to Humbug? Uh, she not has recently. Gotten, it's no contest, no contest, I tell you. No <laughs> contest. But, but, I mean, it is extraordinary that that... Emotion is tugging the country. Patrick's book has come out. I'm sure it'll be immensely uh, widely read. People are really putting their minds back to that period, and of course they miss it in some strange way. That was a war that not only you could involve in, as he's described so well, but you felt everything was right. You know, you didn't have this questioning about Afghanistan. They don't sit round every night saying, "God, it's great what's going on in hell," but isn't it? We're really hammered. Those Taliban. Yeah. They sort of said, "Do you think we should be there? Is there enough tanks?" Or it's a different approach. A different world, my God, or is it really a different, uh, a, a different world, a different time? We still are sort of basically battles. Still inspire, don't they? Uh, a nation that consider home in safety. Uh, they certainly do. But, um, what, what I think is interesting about the Battle of Britain and Trafalgar you mentioned is, and they were decisive battles, and the Battle of Britain in particular... Represents- Although we didn't beat the Luftwaffe, did no, we? But did we? No, but it, it represented a turning point in the sense that the Luftwaffe was unable to get air superiority, which it would have needed if uh, there was to have been at least the threat, of, a, a genuine threat of an invasion which could have taken place. While there was no air superiority, as any um, Taiwanese person will tell you, um, mm. uh, you are you are relatively um, just on that so quickly yeah. you, why did it stop you've got such a patrick. specific date patrick well what, it's the, the, the dates are a bit sort of um artificial really um basically at that point uh, the daytime air activity faded out from on the luftwaffe side they switched to night oh, full-on uh, blitz i mean it, it was more yeah. or less an acceptance that so nobody they would, they would never uh, be, that, that's not when churchill sort of made a speech to sort of 
No, I mean, and, you know, this, September the 15th is seen as more uh, the day that uh, events turned and uh, the biggest effort, or one of the biggest efforts, it wasn't actually, um, was turned back. And at, at that point, it was obvious that they weren't ever going to gain air superiority. Well, indeed, they needed air supremacy. They basically needed yeah, to have the, the, the complete control of the skies over the channel in order to launch an invasion. Mm. Um, so it was. It wasn't quite as clear-cut as the dates suggest. Um, I think you can fairly say that after September the fifteenth, it was a slide down to an inevitable abandonment of the daylight operation. Just a just a final point, which which ties in very much, which goes on today still. Um, the heroes, silk scarves, jalopies down to the pub. I think you call them after the after after a dogfight. Um, and Labradors, and mm. Labradors, the names of which you're not allowed to mention now. Um, <coughs> it's a strange Guy thing. It's a, yeah, Guy Gibson's Labrador, you're not allowed to mention his name. Um, interesting thing, though, is the guys after the war that couldn't hack it. It's a strange thing. The war was simply... Uh, what do you mean, the pilots? Yeah, the pilots. Uh, they, such a high, and everything else seemed rather ordinary and boring and frustrating after the war. Yes, I think there was an element of that. You know, they were fated uh, during and after. They became instant heroes with very good reason. And I think for some it was um, a terrible anticlimax. But there's another element, of course, which is the tremendous stresses and what was not, then not called post-traumatic stress disorder was obviously there. And, you know, there are stories I know of, of people who were seemed to be incredibly tough and stiff upper lippish and all the rest of it and who, you know, had miserable subsequent lives played by mental ill health and indeed some committed suicide. So there are some sad tales there. Tell you what, um, apart from Patrick's book, Battle of Britain, you, you really ought to go and... Well, you mustn't see this, must you, but I would. Uh, you really, <laughs> well, I can. I can, I've got the microphone. You really ought to go and buy it. Battle of Britain, a day-by-day chronicle. It really is something... This, I tell you, it's very heavy as well, so not bad for... 25 quid? They're all 25 quid now, but you, you can must, probably get one cheaper. Quirkus? Yeah. <laughs> Quirkus? Surrey Stationers. Half Surrey price, Stationers, yeah. half every, price. Patrick Bishop, Battle of Britain. Every, yes, every home with a, with a swinging door should have one. Listen, <laughs> I'll tell you something else you ought to do. And I think you really ought to go and have a look um, at a website, if, if you can get onto it. And that's 3 Commander Brigade, um, uh, which is its base in Drake, in Devonport. Because what's happened is that the services... We're talking about people who couldn't hack it after the war. The services still have problems of personnel finding it hard to settle after an operation, which is, I think, one of the reasons that this week the Royal Marines opened a new rehabilitation unit. It's called mm. Hasler Company, and it's, um, it's in the 3 Commander Brigade uh, base at Drake in Devonport. And basically it's there uh, to take the pressure off operational units because percentage of casualties of this sort of kind after a tour, let's say, of Afghanistan are considerable, are, are considerable. It's, it's quite new thinking. Um, so go and have a look at the, the, the website. We'll be talking, I hope, in a couple of weeks to its um, uh, officer commander, Major Pete uh, Curtis, simply because we want to find out how it's gone, got going. Right, now, there's something else I thought was fascinating this week. Did you see... Well, it's going to be fascinating tomorrow... And that is um, reunification. Tomorrow, the Foreign Office is going to release some papers, I think about 500 of them. Uh, and fundamentally what it's saying, is these papers are saying is this. 
when the uh, war came down, when the Germans started talking about reunification, mm-hmm. um, France's Prime Minister Mitterrand, uh, Chris Walker, apparently said to Margaret Thatcher, this reunification stuff, it could make Germany as much as it was under Hitler. That's an astonishing, as dangerous as it was. As dangerous as it was under Hitler. That is an astonishing mm. thing to say, isn't it? Well, it shows the old buffer was getting near the end of his days because he got it so well, he wrong. he said it to the right it? woman as well, didn't <laughs> yeah, he? But, I mean, what a mistake. Uh, it's, if anything, the bringing of the West and the East together has tended to bring down the West to a certain extent, drained it. It hasn't brought a lot of imaginative forward thinking. I mean, Germany is not what it used to be, and I don't know where he got the idea from. Where were they going to to do this? Uh, well, I mean, what he actually says, I think, because I've seen some of this stuff, um, thing, it has quotes such as, um, uh, this is to Margaret Thatcher, this is that Germany will make even more ground than Hitler. I mean, that is not... There's no, there's no pulling punches, is it? Now, Mar- uh, Margaret Thatcher was always against re- or had doubts about reunification. But all, this is January 1990. When did the war come down, Patrick? It was the 8th, no, 9th of November... Uh, 89. 89. Yeah. You know, so it's only six weeks later. I was, I was yeah. there. I was yeah. there. I got me a bit of rock. Um, <laughs> but he says... Did you have your Tim helmet on? As they no, came no, 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 no. The Panzers have, came shut across. Up, shut up. This is my <laughs> programme. Um, listen, it's a reunification, he said. He said it, it'll turn them into the, and I quote, the bad people. He's the Germans he's talking about. This is only 1990. The bad people they used to be. Now, why would he be saying a thing like that, Patrick? I would. He had direct experience of the Germans. Um, you know, he he'd been in as a he was a prisoner, wasn't he? And then on his release, actually worked with uh, Pétain and the Vichy government. So you know, he'd seen them pretty close up. And who knows? I mean, I'm not uh, being alarmist, but uh, maybe they just there is something about Germany, and they are going through a quiescent period. And you know, and fifty years time. I mean, I'm not, you should. We we all know from uh, from history that you never say never. And uh, perhaps he yes. was. Well, students of the Franco-Prussian <coughs> War. I think it's going back a bit too far. But when you consider yeah. that uh, we're talking about, you know, Battle of Britain, Second World War. Mm. What was one of the reasons for the Second World War is because after the First World War, the French insisted that the Germans cough up lots of money and mm. keep coughing up lots of money. That produced mm. a form of nationalism. That produced Hitler. Mitterrand got a point. Yeah, I think it's worth Michael. making a point that um, we're taking a very British view here for the reasons you've Certainly indicated. That yeah. we didn't go through what France went and no. our discussion about the Battle of Britain um, uh, points to that. But it has been um, an element of French policy since uh, the end of the war and all the way through the building of the European Union etc. that what you need to do is to um, keep Germany well joined up, and for that Germany needs to be containable. And um, and uh, so it's no real surprise. Said. The actual rhetoric may have been extraordinary, but then of course it's no great surprise because we remember what Margaret Thatcher had to say at the same sort of time. Not so many words, but the implications to to, to me, certainly listening to her, were not that particularly different. Okay, let's put this in a let's put this in the context that um, you, Chris Walker, raised earlier, and that is uh, the British uh, and the Americans trying to get French and the Germans to do more in Afghanistan. Ooh. Here we have an example where there are political undertones, and they're not too far under the surface of the discussion that's going on at the moment. Well, very close, particularly in 
Germany, which is about three weeks from an election. And Angela Merkel, who I think generally is thought of as rather a good thing uh, as across Future presidents Europe. of Europe. Yes, and people are impressed. But she's facing a lot of trouble because she's being pushed by the Americans to in some way increase German involvement. And uh, if she does that now, uh, it could reflect very badly on her at the polls because whatever Monsieur Mitterrand uh, says... The Germans are rather unmilitaristic at the moment. They seem to be the race in Europe, perhaps apart from the Finns, who are less likely to go on a sort of war path. They seem almost paranoid if they uh, see anything that looks like a German military action. And they've, they have, the public has had quite a sort of, to take quite a lot on what they are doing in Afghanistan. And uh, Patrick, going back to the point that Michael um, Cotton makes very well, and that is reminding us that we in Britain during the war were, in spite of the, t the blitz that followed and continued until, what, May of next year after the Battle of Britain, um, we're pretty invulnerable. We're, we don't live in a society that for 800 years have been, has been crisscrossed by different armies as, as it have if you're in continental, uh, if you're in continental Europe. Um, and therefore, we, we could see the Battle of Britain, I don't mean as a sporting event, but almost as if we were watching it from a, an arena, and we've turned it into a sporting event ever yeah. since, haven't we? You know, with these marvellous pictures of, um, you know, gallant pilots saying, well, you know, I had nothing against him personally. Mm. Not if you're French. And indeed, the, uh, you know, the cricket mm. score analogy, which uh, was, you know, early on and anyway, there was a certain sort of jokiness about the way the Daily Toll was presented. Um, so it was uh, a lot of the, a lot of the language and a lot of the imagery they used was was about chivalry and about jousting knights of the air etc. Mm. And to a certain extent it was. Um, mm. So we were extremely lucky in that respect. I mean, getting back to France, um, I was recently in eastern France in the Champagne area, and you know, along these long roads cutting across these flat, um, big fields, you see you come across endless. Uh, war memorials, and not just for one war, two, three wars. As you said, the Franco-Prussian War, the First World War, and the Second World. There's these. This mm. was armies sweeping back and forth over um, decades and decades and decades. Uh, it does create a different mindset to the one we have. Yes. Well, talking about mindsets, and, and just finally, because we've only got a couple of minutes. Did you notice? Of course, you did. That yesterday was the ninth day of the ninth month of the ninth year, and there was a big bunch of doomsters around the world. I saw them here in London. Um, they saw the significance in this coincidence of dates, and very simply, when the numbers come like that, the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. The end is nigh placards. We don't see them now, do we, Christopher Walker? It's such a shame, isn't it? No, and that particular combination of numbers is different to different people. The Chinese believe it's amazingly lucky, and there are supposed to be 9,900 rooms in the palace uh, in, in Peking, whereas the Japanese think exactly the opposite, and they're great doomsters, and they won't even stay in a hotel room with nine on it. Right. Christop if you're um, a Russian Michael. Orthodox priest... Um, the um, ninth day is ten, year, ten days hence, so we need to watch out because it could be right. And oh, Russians do have oh, yes. their finger on gloom and doom in a way that we probably don't. <laughs> yes, yes, especially the, the old Orthodox. calendar. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, um, Patrick, you stick to facts and figures, don't you? You wouldn't go in for this, uh, the end is nice stuff. Well, I'm glad you told me, otherwise I would have spent a you know, very, very restless day yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you are. The end is not nigh, but I'm afraid we are. By the way, quickly, uh, this mystery ship that was supposed to be <clears throat> hijacked, 
the Israelis say it was carrying arms for Iran. Yeah, and the Israelis, uh, Mossad was involved. Yeah, your mates again. OK, that's <laughs> it for this week. My thanks to Patrick Why Bishop. was Netanyahu in Moscow? Ah. Oh. Secret trip. Patrick Bishop, Chris Walker and Michael Codner, thanks very much. Join us again next week, same time, 4 o'clock. You can listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. For now, I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, Mary's in the hut. <laughs>